This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. This is Joris Peels. I'm uh, the editor-in-chief of 3dprint.com, and I'm here today together with Maxwell Vogue of 3Doodler. Hello, everybody. And Max and I have a guest today on the show. It's uh, Scott Summit. Scott Summit's an industrial designer. He's uh, one of the first people to really try to tackle the problem of making custom prosthetics for people. He did a lot of work with 3D printing, a lot of other industrial design work as well. He's a very critical user of 3D printing, but he's also really pushed the technology forward. And uh, he's an all-around great guy and a good friend of mine. It's a pleasure to welcome uh, Scott to the show today. Thanks a lot, Joris. Good to talk to you. Uh, so yeah, well, you've been active in 3D printing for, for quite a while now, and uh, I was wondering how you first got started. I was involved 30 years ago. Actually, we had a 3D printer with a serial number of something like 00002, and that was back in the early days. I was in a, a lab at a company called Raychem, and we were tasked with exploring new technology, kind of an internal corporate skunk works. So um, the SLA came out, the SLA 250, I think it was. It came out, we got one, and we uh, played around with it until we broke it and figured out how to fix it. So that was that was my first embrace of it. It was a lot messier then. Okay, and then before that, because after Raychem, you did a bunch of design uh, jobs as well? Yeah, I worked uh, at Apple and then uh, left Apple and uh, joined a startup industrial design studio called Tonic and then started my own and then left that taught at Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, Singularity, and now I have a new company, oh, and then uh, Bespoke, and then 3D Systems, and now I have a new one called Ethereal. So, and, and when you, between when you went to Raycam, when you actually started making, you know, getting back involved with 3D printing, what was like the, the impetus for you to, you know, take it up once again? The funny thing was it wasn't a goal to get back into 3D printing at all. I had this idea that I could impact uh, prosthetic limbs, because I'm, I'm an industrial designer, and it seemed like this opportunity that nobody's explored. Uh, it seemed like a chance to really improve somebody's life in a significant way that hasn't been played by played with by any designers in the past. So I was looking at how to do it, and 3D printing kind of became became the best option simply because of the ability to create bespoke products. So the idea was like, okay, limbs or prosthetics are bespoke. 3D printing is is something that lets you make bespoke. So the combinations to be good? Was that literally your, your jumping off point there? or? Yeah, exactly. I was looking at thermal forming and CNC and everything else. But then I hadn't really explored SLS in the time after I left Raycam. So SLS became the natural candidate because it was strong. It was uh, compatible for skin contact, great finish quality, all that good stuff. So that became my new friend. Wait, how long did this take from the idea of having this as an idea to actually you know getting anywhere with it? I spent uh, a year and a half, I guess, up in the mountains, and in that time, just explored every possible way to uh, 3D print a prosthetic limb. Um, part of it was just really medical research. You know, how do prosthetic limbs work? You know, how do they interact with humans? What do people want in them? What do they see? How do they treat them? All that stuff. So I had to kind of backfill a medical knowledge which had never existed. And mm -hmm. then it was a matter of learning all the, the parameters behind SLS. Mm -hmm. And what it can do and what its strengths are and costs and all that stuff. So I guess that was just a couple of years of just living uh, super cheap up in the mountains and uh, doing some concepts, finding a couple of people, finding a couple of uh, actually willing amputees who wanted to play along. Uh, mm -hmm. that, was, that was not a given that, that those people would be available. 
Yeah, and then so you found those people. Did you find other people that helped you along the way, or? Uh, yeah, I found that the prosthetists I found were um, were of two varieties. One was the kind that thought what I was what I was doing was crazy or threatening or uh, a waste of their time, and so they wanted nothing to do with me, and they kind of laughed me out of the door. The military was among those, and then there were a couple of prosthetists really? who, yeah, of all things, at first. Uh, now they're they embrace right. it wholeheartedly, right. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but. Um, <laughs> But but the, the first uh, trips to Walter Reed and Center for the Intrepid and Balboa, those were treated like here's this this crazy man with this crazy idea come to town, let's give him uh, a few minutes and then uh, show him the door. We even went to the uh, to the White House and met with some uh, Department of the Military, I forgot which one, and they kind of treated the whole thing with some amusement. So um, but then there were a couple of prosthetists who we found were very visionary and they could see it, they could understand it. Once we could put some concept parts in their hands, they they got it. And mm-hmm. their eyes really lit up. There, there are very few, and they're um, they're by far the minority. Uh, when, and this was again was twelve this? years ago. Yeah, this was yeah, twelve years yeah. ago. So this was around two thousand seven, two thousand eight ish. So three D right. printing was was not a household word at all. It wasn't even right. this kind of crazy future word. It was a secret handshake word among a few geeks. That's about mm-hmm. it. And when did that? I mean, and so when did you start to? Because okay, so funding as well at this time was also a nightmare, right? Yeah, funding was was nearly impossible. Luckily, I teamed up with a, a, a colleague, a guy named Ken Trauner, who's an orthopedic surgeon, and he had done several venture-backed startups that had successful exits. So he was able to, for one thing, redirect us from, we, we partnered up. He, he said, well, basically prosthetic legs are not going to be where we want to put our focus because it's a, it's a non-starter. The numbers will never add up no matter what you do to them. And we looked at him, and sure enough, he had the business knows that I didn't. And it struck me that, yeah, the numbers wouldn't add up. My, my little heart project didn't have financial soundness to it. Um, mm-hmm. But we shifted to scoliosis, which was the same concept and the same principle and frame of mind, the same technology and materials and, and approach. And that does have a market because mm-hmm. uh, in the tens of millions. So that made more market sense. So we did some prototypes on a couple of kids and showed a, uh, a seed investor, angel investor. And I think within the course of a dinner, we had $3 million in, uh, in seed funding. Or maybe mm-hmm. it was a Series A, I forgot back then. But uh, mm-hmm. th- that worked out very well, and that got us uh, into motion. Yeah, and how did you meet your co-founder? Because this was pretty, uh, yeah? Yeah, he was, that was just um, really luck of the draw. Um, I happened to know his sister-in-law from just different events in San Francisco, and I... <laughs> Happened to almost get run over <laughs> by her when I was walking across the road and I hadn't seen her in years. So we talked to her for uh, over a coffee and she said, yeah, that her brother-in-law had a good nose for entrepreneurship. Why he was especially a good candidate was that he had a mechanical engineering background, so he understood design and mechanics, but he was an orthopedic surgeon, so he understood the medicine and medical needs and hospital needs. And he was an entrepreneur, so you put those combinations together, and he was a very rare find. And on top of that, he loved the idea of crazy ideas. Most, If you talk to almost any uh, person in the medical world, they're, they're busy, they're exhausted, and they're paid well. So the last thing they want to do is become an entrepreneur in their spare time, I've found. But he um, he was an entrepreneur at heart, and he did his, his surgeries during his work hours. So yeah, we were very compatible. And, and I think one of the secrets to the success of Bespoke was that industrial designers and orthopedic surgeons don't know each other. You know, we live on different planets. We wouldn't talk to each other at cocktail parties, you know? So, so here we had the perfect synergy simply because 
we were this unlikely combination who happened to get along and love the idea of problem solving. So mm-hmm. that, that's what worked really. And how long did it take from him like exactly pivoting you towards this scoliosis braces to actually getting the product in, in patients or on patients? Actually? Yeah, we, we uh, tried them on some kids who didn't need them first just to see if the idea of scanning a, a body and printing a part for it was a realistic one. You know, if you can create conformal geometry that was comfortable enough and if a computer could handle the uh, the kind of geometry you're tasking it with. So mm-hmm. that was that was a good year and a half something of just mm-hmm. trying to debug the whole process. Once we felt okay we could we could do it, we could bludgeon it a submission. We had mm-hmm. done some pivots with software and people and things like that. Then we uh, went to attack the insurance companies to get a P code. We found that that was much harder than the technology um, of all things that, it, you know, it's one thing to get computers and all this crazy <clears throat> high tech to work. It's another thing to get insurance companies to listen to a fairly obvious equation of why this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And that we had to hire people for that just to have that conversation, just try to convince the insurance companies of the obvious. So that, that was the, the trickier part. Did you have any issues with, I assume you had to get like class one certification. Yeah, FDA. class one, <laughs> FDA class one is a no brainer. It's super easy. Um, it, it's, you basically file a letter of intent and we had a consultant do all the documentation and all the stuff. That so was, it wasn't an issue because it was a, it was always gonna be different, right? Like whatever you produced is always unique. Didn't have yeah, an issue. it wasn't really an issue in the sense that, um, uh, like casts, you know, and uh, okay, yeah. you know, so casts it, are in general FDA class a one technique, so to speak, on some level as well as being a physical product. Because um, of yeah, well, what we patented was an approach. We we patented everything about it because right. one has to. The final product we were able to patent in in the technique. Uh, we had some trade secrets in how to go from 3D scanning to 3D printing. Now it's fairly easy to do that because there are softwares that are designed just for that. And now actually 3D scanning is is a fairly easy, common thing to do. But back then we had to invent a 3D scanner. Uh, there was right. nothing that existed that could do such a thing. In you know, 2009, 2010, there was nothing like that technology. So we traveled all around the world, literally talking to people about how to invent a 3D body scanner. So there was a lot of crazy research like that that had to happen. You know, the, the, the biggest challenge is if you're scanning, if, if the success of your approach hinges on a 10 to 12-year-old girl standing for 45 seconds, that's a bad thing. They, they can't do that. That's, my assumption was, oh, sure, they just hold really still. Well, no, after about 20 seconds, they lose interest and they, they're, you know, it's like trying to scan a hamster. Right. Um, you, you just can't do it. <laughs> so, okay, so then it took a while to get approval, it took a while to get insurance companies, and how long was it then to, or what was the struggle afterwards? Was it to get acceptance with patients and, and doctors and, and people like that? Yeah, we found a real champion um, of a, an or, uh, let's say he was a prosthetist, and he was willing to let us experiment with some of his patients. We had some great parents and kids who were willing to be our, our patients. And we treated them with our approach, and it worked out very well. So that was that was successful. And concurrently, we were trying to get an insurance P code assigned, mm-hmm. um, but that was a lot. You know, as I said, that was a lot less successful just because we we're up against more intractable forces. And then, what other products did you explore making in the medical sphere? Then, <laughs> oh, we had at that point we had two two investors in our in our A round, and. Within about two weeks of each other, both of them had kids break limbs. 
So we had a seven-year-old girl break an, an arm, I think it was a tibia, and we had two, a three and a five-year-old kid both break their, uh, no, no, sorry, the, the, it was the radius for the girl and the tibias for the other two um, girls, three and a five-year-old. So we had, to, we had the opportunity to cast them. Um, <laughs> now, in retrospect, that was a really stupid idea because we had no idea what we were doing. We hadn't researched in advance. We were just shooting on the fly. And also 3D scanning a three-year-old and a five-year-old who are in pain in the hospital for a, a cast you know, that's that's also hard because they really don't stand still. You know, <laughs> a kid who's in pain doesn't stand still very well for a 3D scan. So um, that forced us to um, explore the 3D scanning options a little better at that point. Um, now, we, we were also very naive, and we hadn't really explored all the parameters of printing for for stabilization. And I'm eternally thankful that nothing bad happened and that the kids recovered and that they, they were um, they were non-displaced fractures. So that helped. Simple fractures made a big difference. It was lucky. It, you know, and I see a lot of um, people doing the same. You know, now here, 10 years later, everybody's trying to do a 3D printed mm -hmm. cast. And occasionally I'll go on the blogs and kind of verbally dope slap them a little bit and say, do not do this. It's a non-starter. Casts are not only bad and economically they make no sense but um they're also dangerous you're more likely to harm the patient considerably than mm -hmm. you are to fix them so and, and that's we could do an hour-long conversation on that alone <laughs> of why you should never cast somebody for a fracture with a 3d printed cast everybody thinks it's a good idea everybody goes through the same motions i don't know if everybody realizes at the end of it that it's a horrible approach so easy to do it right now with the current system and Yes. They also have the air casts and stuff like that, but it just... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. super easy. You do a basic 3D scan, you you model it, you print it up, and, and you think you've actually done a medical product, um, when in fact, no, it's it's anything but true. Um, the problem is you have to really understand your blood flow, your bony prominences, your nerves, your um, contact areas, your, your swelling likelihood areas, all these other things. If you do any of those wrong, you're screwing up the patient and you're, you're potentially impeding blood flow or leaving with nerve damage. So, yeah, that should be treated very soberly. Unlike, yeah. unlike what we did, very cavalierly yeah. jumping into it. Um, you know, it's like, learn from my mistakes. Do not do this. No. I do think it's, it, it should be feasible with a lot of research and a lot of effort, but nobody seems to be doing the prerequisite research and effort. That's... You know, um, it's, it's yeah. feasible, but it's also, it. you know, when I talk to anybody about 3D printing, I would say, unless you can answer the why question, don't go there. Yeah. You know, the why exactly. question has, to, you know, why are you 3D printing it? Well, there's no good reason to 3D print a cast. I think it's kind of the XO or something like that. There are some different types of casts. Um, and standard plaster is actually decent for a 30-day non-displaced fracture cast. Now, that's entirely different from post-operative cast which mm -hmm. I did for myself, actually, in 2014, I think it was, I, I uh, tore a ligament in my wrist. And so mm -hmm. I made my own post-op stabilization cast. And that mm -hmm. is a whole different story and makes complete sense from mm -hmm. the economic perspective, medical perspective, everything else. They're very different equations. Yeah, I, I really am a firm believer in any kind of post-operative fixation stuff. It's all custom, usually, and, and, and yep. there's a really good case for doing them. Um, yeah, and also with ligaments and tendons, you're, you're in it for four months. Yeah, and exactly. 30 days, you can kind of survive showering minimally. Uh, mm -hmm. Four months, no, you're you're in pretty bad shape if you're if, if you have a miserable traditional cast. 
No, I totally agree. And also another thing that is, yeah, I think there's definitely a business case is in fairings because you went on to do that as well, right? Sorry, you guys still there? Or did I lose you? Yeah, yeah. you're still there. Yeah, Start from the beginning. Okay. I'm going to be biking. I live in Amsterdam. I'm going to be biking across town while talking to you. So if you hear traffic noise, that's traffic noise. Just, just don't um, get into an accident on our account. Yeah, well, luckily, Amsterdam doesn't have many cars, so it'll be quiet very soon. You'll just hear background canal sounds here pretty soon. Scott Summit <laughs> interview and, and and eulogy. <laughs> In one, just got exactly. hit by a car live on the podcast. This is going to be our breakthrough. The, the last interview with Scott Summit <laughs> might be worth I, something. I just love that we're doing this across three continents. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, and now I'm like every other Dutch person who is actually on a phone call while they're biking through traffic. Biking, that's, right. that's, <laughs> Which, yeah, that's uh, traditional Dutch. With, uh, is illegal, and it's a, is, uh, there's fines on that. Really? But for hundreds of euros. Yeah, <laughs> up to, I think, 450 euros. Wow. Okay, well, by biking across a red light, which I am doing right now while talking on the phone, I should be able to triple that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, Holland. <laughs> All right, anyway, so so you you later on you went and you worked in in uh, yeah more again in fairings and in prosthetic legs and things like that. Yeah, very... so yeah, once uh, I, I still wanted to do prosthetic fairings, I just couldn't make the numbers work. The amount of man hours that goes into making a custom device like that, the cost of the product, you know, when you're doing SLS and then the finished parts and the cleanup and all that stuff. And then assume some reject rates because you don't find where your clearances are until you have a real thing there. And then a person deciding, you know, I don't like it. <laughs> you know, once in a while you get one of those. And then your whole business model just fell apart because whatever margin you had before is gone. So just couldn't make fairings work. Yeah, but I do think one important thing you did prove with them. I mean, I mean, the business case might not be there yet. But I think, I think you know, you were the first case putting out there of the idea of prosthetics being beautiful. Uh, that's yeah. somehow adding to it. Yeah, and that, that was all I would really wanted to do with my students at Carnegie Mellon was to say, hey, can you take this very utilitarian, clumsy, clunky product and can you rearrange the social component to it and psychological component to it simply by, by using design? And I wanted to really drive that concept into my students was that design isn't just about making something look good. It is about changing society's relationship with its members. And we did that. And that was affirmed many times over with the amputees I met um, that I worked with. You know, some of them would say, well, they bought their first pair of shorts in years. And you know, mm -hmm. it's not about buying shorts. It's about a person who had traditionally been ashamed of their condition deciding, hey, now they're going to proudly display it. You know, that's significantly different. We had one woman, uh, Deborah, she used to text me every time somebody would compliment her on her leg. <laughs> and she just said, you know, it's the strangest thing. Nobody compliments an amputee on their leg. You compliment somebody on their haircut or their fashion or their shoes, but not on their prosthetic limb. And she was saying it was the strangest thing. Suddenly people were giving her this warm reaction and they were actually, they wanted to talk to her. They didn't feel uncomfortable. They didn't feel distanced by the fact that she had this weird machine thing on her body. Mm -hmm. So it really did change relationships. And to me, that's kind of the power of design and the power of technology. What are you working on now? Can you tell us a little bit about that, or is that all still super secret? Well, it's, it's all still super secret, but um, I can give some hints to it. So the, the idea with everything I was doing with Bespoke, with prosthetics, uh, prosthetic devices, and scoliosis, 
was to use design to create, to change an experience and to change a product and to positively impact people as a result. So the product I'm working on now, I started a company a couple of years ago here in Amsterdam and we're building it out as, as I speak if I wasn't on my bike right now. It is a large haptic structure designed to allow physical interaction with the virtual world. And there are haptic devices like that of many types. Um, a lot of them are used for medical modeling or uh, cinema modeling, things like that. This is used for fitness. And it's the idea that you will be able to enter a virtual environment and physically interact with it. And while you're in this, you know, sometimes psychedelic, sometimes adventurous, imaginative environment, you're also getting fit. You're also having this incredible workout. Even though you may not be there for the workout, you might just be there for some escape or some, some uh, a wild half hour. My hope is it will be the new gym. Yeah, and, and what's the company name again? Just in case. Uh, the company's we... called Ethereal. Okay. Ether yeah, meets so. real. Where, where are you in it? Is it, are you Series A or? <laughs> no, we are me seeding it, which is my least favorite business model right now. <laughs> so, so I am talking to seed investors and angel investors uh, right now for a seed round. And it is going very well. My partner is actually Russ Engold, who's the founder of Exobionics, who is the guy who invented the exoskeletal robot. Ah. Um, we're very like-minded in the sense that he created a robot hoping that it would improve the lives of spinal cord injury people and let them walk. Um, they've made great strides with that. They invented an entire industry based on that concept. And he left that a couple of years ago. And his goal is very like-minded since then to use technology to improve the quality of people's lives. So this product really spoke to him as well. And are you looking for anybody to talk to? Like, are you looking for people to work with you on that or something like that? Or? Well, in six weeks, we're going to be moving it all back to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And once we get some funding, we're going to want people who are Unity programmers and game designers and mechanical engineers and electromechanical people. Uh, mm -hmm. Luckily, the Bay Area has a lot of all of them, but we are very welcome to meeting that assortment of people. And what's changed the most in 3D printing since you've been involved with it? A lot of things. It is, it's gone from being a nerd tool to being the catch-all sci-fi fantasy device, mm -hmm. where it is now known by everybody. Everybody knows that 3D printing's there. Very few people understand what its parameters are. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's, much, it's capable of things far more than people could imagine. But on the other hand, it is nowhere near living up to people's expectations. For example, <laughs> when you talk to a, a person about 3D printing, where you want it to be in five years, the typical response will be something along the lines of, well, when my blender breaks, I want to be able to go into my kitchen, press a button, download a new blender and print it, and then be making my shake a minute later. That's the level of fantasy that won't come true and kind of ignores what manufacturing is all about. But when they find out that that fantasy won't happen, there is that kind of a gardener's hype cycle letdown experience that you can see in people's eyes. But what they don't realize is that it is so significantly involved in everything around us already and will continue that way. So I always get surprised at how much people are excited by it, but excited by a fantasy more than the reality. Yeah. yeah. 
All right, so Scott, Anything? you gave us, originally you told us you had about uh, this much time. Is that still relevant? Do you have a couple more minutes? Or? Well, since we have connectivity while I'm writing across Western <laughs> Gas Fabrique right now, okay, good, um, good. it looks like I can talk all the way yeah. uh, until I get to my next meeting. Though, forgive me if I'm sounding like I'm winded. No worries. Oh, it sounds like it sounds like you could use a little bit of cardio there. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe you should look into some exercise technology. Maybe exactly. Yeah, yeah <laughs> virtual stuff. It's, it's a little bit less wet than the uh, current rainy day I'm writing through. I, I hear it's the new in thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, about three D printing. Is it? Is it? You know, now we're in this hype period, or now we're actually kind of like trying. Yeah, we're back po up. we're post hype period. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're in the trough of disillusionment if you follow the Gardner's hype cycle. Yeah. 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 So, so it, it, if we're looking at it from this present state, I mean, do you think it's a good business tool for people to get started with now? Or if you would get started with as a designer or a company uh, with it now, what advice would you give people? Yeah. You know, yeah, I think it's people are underestimating it because the hype cycle came and went. You know, the, the peak of expectations has come and gone. But the catch is that it is huge. It's in all of our lives. It has something to do with everything around us and the creation of all the products that we interact with. And that's only going to get more so. So if people look at it and say, well, I bought a, an Ultimaker, printed a couple things, got bored, didn't like that 3D printing stuff anyway, uh, which is a lot of the world. A lot of the hype cycle was based on that, that mentality. People don't realize that that was a sideshow. That was a... You know, a little bit of candy thrown to the masses, but the real party is not there. It's in end-use products that are infiltrating our airplanes and our cars and our, you know, washing machines and everything else. That's exciting stuff because that is groundbreaking and game changer. But now when people also say that they're going to get into 3D printing, a lot of times they ask me, okay, where's the hot stuff? You know, where, 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 should, I, where should I focus my attention? And their thinking is, well, should I become a service bureau and buy a bunch of printers stuff them in a room and print stuff um, for whatever margin you can get. And that I think is a hard one because there are a lot of printers out there. It's a race to the bottom. You're fighting over ever tighter margins. So that one I don't see as, as being exciting. What I do see as exciting is somebody talking to that wild-eyed delusional industrial design student who is willing to look at some area that's never really experienced a rethink. Mm -hmm. And in challenging them to rethink it and working with them on that. And you look at some of the great successes there. You have Invisalign. You know, that was a couple of kids out of Stanford who had this crazy idea, completely delusional, that you could 3D print something that could replace braces. And mm -hmm. really their technology, fine as it was, I think is second to their ability to recognize the problem. That people had come accustomed to braces thinking, well... Braces correct teeth, and that's fine, and that's the way it's always going to be. How can you rethink that? How can you improve it? What these guys did very well was problem identification. They rolled back the equation and said, it's not about braces. It's about correcting teeth, and that's what led yeah. them to 3D printing. So I think that somebody who goes into it with a hammer looking for a nail, saying, what can I 3D print next and make a margin off? Wrong approach. I think you have to think like these guys from Stanford and say, okay, what are the problems we face? that haven't been fundamentally, foundationally reconsidered yet. And how do we do that? And that's yeah. when things get exciting. What I do, like as a thought exercise with clients or used to do, is what can you print between the size of a marble and a mug? 
that for a hundred dollars could be a solution to a problem. You know, that's uh, you'd asked a couple minutes ago, what um, what's changed in three D printing? Well, when I started it, you know, thirty years ago or so, it really was stuff that you could print in that size range. Mm -hmm. um, anything bigger would fall apart. Anything smaller would be lost in a bad resolution. But what's mm -hmm. amazing now is there's almost a continuum between nanotechnology, micro, to uh, household consumer size, up mm -hmm. to architectural scale, up mm -hmm. to, you know, when you look at what main space is doing, they've kind of, uh, they've proven that now you can print, you know, theoretically infinitely big. Mm -hmm. So that's what's exciting is that what started as a very narrow spectrum of what was mm -hmm. printable size-wise has mm -hmm. become a complete across the board. It's as small as we can imagine, all the way up to as big as we can imagine. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, if you plot that on one axis, pardon the lawnmower, <laughs> plot that on one axis, another axis you could say, you, you throw in multi-materials now. Well, we haven't even thought of what we can do with multi-materials because we've, you know, in, in our injection molding universe that we've spent our last 20th century with, well, there was no such thing. You could do double shot or insert molding or something like that, but you really couldn't think multi-materials. Now all of a sudden you can do some crazy stuff with that. The challenge is simply that design schools don't teach you that, <laughs> what you can do with multi-materials. <laughs> it's too new. It's a, it's a very unfamiliar concept. So I think that the tools are now, the, the tools and the ability to create something revolutionary and groundbreaking and completely disruptive, they're all there waiting for people. You know, what you need is a creative, smart person who says, okay, you combine column A, B, and C, and you really have something. Mm -hmm. And I think multi-materials is certainly one of them. You know, the affordability of metals is another. You know, you throw in biologics on top of that and wet printing. Well, that's where things get exciting on a whole different dimension. Mm -hmm. You know, who, who knew that 3D printing would be embraced by the people who were in the chem lab at school, not the engineering and industrial design geeks? So that's, you know, yet another axis where it's expanded. It's just who has embraced it. And that's, I think, super exciting. And are there still some limitations that, you're, that really bug you when you're working with the technology, either at home or at work? Or... Oh, STL. <laughs> the STL yeah. format yeah. drives me absolutely <laughs> bad shit, if I can say that on your podcast. It's, hey, um, anything. it's kind of, a, you know, a clumsy leftover way to describe a three-dimensional object. It Do you doesn't prefer, like, G-code over STL, though? Well, I don't because I don't want to get mired in the technology of it. Fair. So I, you know, as much as I hate STL, I still use it daily. Um, <laughs> I think what gets more interesting is I, I think uh, uh, Euformia or Euformit out of Norway, they can export G-code directly. Um, and they're doing that because they can do multi-material and STL doesn't really embrace that so well. I think that that's one of the big hindrances is just that you have to have a different format because the technology is so different from 30 years ago. And do you actually 3D print a lot yourself at the moment, or are you just kind of like more focused on more uh, different things? Well, I print daily. Um, I think my printers are running every night. And I had still on, uh, still on the, I think, the material that I bought from you a couple of years ago in <laughs> Harlem. So, yeah, I print nightly, partly because what I'm designing is a fairly complex mechanical device. And... Yeah. That's important. But then the other, the other thing, and this is by no means as trivial as it sounds, but I have a six-year-old son, and mm -hmm. I want him to grow up in a world where 3D printing every night is just what you do. And the power of that, I think, is pretty phenomenal. When I was a kid, 
it was, if I wanted to build something, it was all I could do to use popsicle sticks, some tape, you know, <laughs> nails, whatever I found on the sidewalk that day. That, those were my building materials. And it's mm-hmm. a great lesson in creativity, but it was also so limited that you, it really limited scope of your imagination. I want him to really be considering that, hey, every crazy idea, no matter how fantastical or how wild-eyed it might be, mm-hmm. it's worth pursuing, even if mm-hmm. just to disprove it. And yes. he has to think twice about that. So he's throwing out ideas at dinner time. We design them after dinner on, uh, on my uh, CAD station. And then we print it at night and test it out in the morning before he goes to school. The power of that is pretty tremendous. I think mm-hmm. that that's really the value of the desktop machines. is isn't in creating parts so much, even though it's nice to have a, a quick proto part. Um, I think it's really in getting the next generation inspired mentally to embrace a level of creativity that previous generations never had access to. You should get them to try a three-doodler. The three-doodler <laughs> start. <laughs> you know, I, I would love to. I, I think he's on SketchUp right now. They're, they're, all, over the, they're all over the Netherlands. <laughs> you know, what's fun is that there are there are galleries and uh, engineering studios and and uh, design openings where we see three D printed parts all the time. And he's he knows everything about it. He knows about how anisotropic weaknesses are uh, are going to affect parts, all layer heights, all these things. So his imagination is really a whole different story from other kids of his age who don't have access to three D printing at least in the design and engineering end of things. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's really the power of it. By the time he's going off to college, he will have taken so many crazy ideas and explored them that I think he probably has a fairly good chance of being a, going into it with, uh, you know, with both legs in motion. Right. Um, a lot of my students at Carnegie, and even at Stanford, one of the hardest things about teaching them design was teaching them about failing and teaching mm-hmm. about trying crazy ideas uh, just to learn from them as they failed. Mm-hmm. These were kids, you know, Carnegie and Stanford have some of the brightest kids on earth and they had never failed in their lives. And so they didn't know what failure even felt like. It was devastating sometimes to them. So to, to have a 3D printer where a failure on an experiment is a fairly casual, typical daily thing and it's nothing to worry about. Well, that is a great tool for inviting them to take chances like they were not used to. And so, again, from the, the value of current desktop machines question, that's, I think, one of the real contributing attributes. Well, it's a failure. It's a failure, failure acceleration device. Exactly. You fail early, fail often. Try every concept if it can be done cheap and fast. It was really funny because I interviewed Scott Crump once, and, and he said to me that like his you know, motto to live with is like, fall down, get up. Yeah, right. fall down, <laughs> fall down once, get up twice, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fall down a hundred times, get up one hundred and one, something like yeah. that. Exactly. But yeah, that's exactly it. And, and the more hesitation you have to falling down, because it's going to be expensive, or you put too much investment into it, the the more cautious you're going to be. And caution is really the the death blow to design and innovation. So a tool that basically throws caution to the wind, or it invites and challenges, it's user to throw caution in the wind. Well, that, that's an especially powerful tool. All right. Hey, uh, Scott, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we got a, a, lot, a lot more uh, from you. No, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. So I, I just entered Vondel Park, and so finally my ride is now quiet and smooth. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> After riding all the way across the city, now I'm surrounded by swans and canals and lakes and things. Okay, so, okay, okay. okay, I'll have a peaceful remainder of my <laughs> ride then. <laughs> Enjoy the rest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> great uh, talking to both of you. Uh, so this is the 3D pod. Uh, so that's a goodbye from me and from Max. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. That was a great show. We hope you stay tuned for the next one. And thank you so much, and give us lots of feedback uh, whenever you can, and tell us uh, what we should cover next. Thank you very much for listening to the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard, or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.